Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our very special guest is writer, director, and producer Natalie Erica James. Her work includes music videos such as Mine by the artist Life is Better Blonde and short films like Crestwick and Drumwave. Her latest is her first feature film, a horror film called Relic, which is hitting VOD on July 10th from IFC Midnight. Welcome to the show, Natalie! Thank you so much, guys. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to talk with you because yeah. uh, we've been gushing with um, IFC Midnight's, our, our, our PR people there, because we both mm-hmm. love, love this movie. And we can't wait to talk to you about Relics. Like, I'm sorry. Oh, what is it like to make Relic as your first feature horror film? Like, yeah. what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> like, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's been, it's been a trip. Yeah. But I mean, you know, there's always there's always rough parts of filmmaking so it definitely wasn't yeah. just like one smooth road yeah yeah oh i can imagine <laughs> i can imagine but it's just yeah. like relic is such a beautiful film um i watched it twice in the like in a week um it Same. sounds creepy i'm sorry but like it's just <laughs> so amazing and i guess before we hop into the specific film how did you get into horror in the first place yeah it's a really good question i guess i think if i my you know 10 year old self could see me now she would be very surprised because I was <laughs> such a scaredy cat growing up and oh. you know <laughs> really couldn't handle horror films until I was probably in my preteen phase 
Um, and then, you know, I, I remember watching E.T. and being terrified. Like, it was that bad. Yeah. And we had someone on the show talk about E.T., so you are not oh, really? alone. Not alone. <laughs> you are not alone. <laughs> yeah, but frequent nightmares, that kind of thing. Um, but in some ways, maybe I feel like that makes me more susceptible to maybe what's scary. Um, and maybe because I have a lot of fears growing up, it's I have an interest in telling stories about them, perhaps. Um, I think it's like Stephen King who says something along the lines of uh, the fact that if we can, you know, talk about our fears and create stories about them, then we can kind of conquer them in a way. So that must be something at play there along those lines. But yeah, so when I was in my preteens and and teens, I discovered uh, Asian horror. And that was Ah. a massive love of mine. A lot of, uh, yeah, I was really into Cronenberg as well. But yeah, I had a a few friends who, you know, we'd regularly have sleepovers and kind of just freak ourselves out with um, horror films and then, you know, not be able to sleep for the next week or so. (laughs) Asian horror film, that's that's like right, like you just dove right into the deep end of horror, (laughs) horror, I feel like, just because I feel like Asian horror films are so much scarier and like visceral and gory. So wow, you really just jumped right in. Yeah, and I think they have this really interesting quality of being deeply psychological as well. And, yeah. You know, beyond Asian horror, I was really into just darker films in general that were heady in some way and really cerebral. And, you know, I was a big cool. fan of David Lynch and, like, Darren Aronofsky's mm. early work. And, cool. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my general interest. And then, yeah, I, I think I, when I, I went to film school straight out of high school and started making these, psychological dramas that kind of slowly over time became more and more horror-esque and then just embraced horror um, in my graduate film. And that's kind of how it started. That's awesome. So it's a, it kind of sounds like you've always had like an inkling of being in, involved in filmmaking. Is how When did you decide you wanted to, to work in the film industry? Yeah, I think I was first aware of filmmaking as a craft and was really fascinated by it when I was probably 11 or 12 watching those, you know, Peter Jackson's um, Lord of the Rings behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would watch those kind of obsessively with my friends. And um, yeah, I was just so fascinated by the craft of it and the the dynamics between the people, um, like the crew and the actors and just was really drawn to it. And then um, when I was 14, my parents let me do this summer filmmaking course where it was just like a rough overview of filmmaking in general. Um, and in throughout high school, I was always the one with, with the camera at school events. So oh, I would yeah. regularly film, um, yeah, just, you know, school trips and that kind of thing and edit them together. And yeah, I just remember the feeling of, hours flying by you know when you have that flow state when you're editing something um yeah the oh boy the joy of that yeah yes I'm a, I do video editing as like my full-time job and I know oh, that okay. when you like when you look down and it's like 9 a.m and then you look up and yeah. it's 3 p.m and you're like what <laughs> where have I been <laughs> yeah I uh, I'm very resistant to it now but back then I feel like that was just yeah a whole new world for me and then uh, in high school, like late high school, I was doing um, art as one of my big subjects. And I just used film as a medium for all my pieces. Because I think I was maybe um, conceptually very strong, but technically very average. <laughs> and so oh. film was almost the perfect medium because you could deliver these really strong visual concepts, but 
not really need too much of a technical yeah skill to, to, to pull them off you know it's more about curation and communication and um you need an eye but it's not like painting where you have to have the the technical skills so yeah it kind of was this right because you uh, have like a team working on right, the, on the right. other well, parts you know right? at that stage you're just doing everything yourself really oh, well, but, <laughs> true <laughs> but i guess in terms of um yeah you know needing it to be lifelike or um yeah it was very different to everything else i tried like painting or sculpture so um, yeah, I kind of found this this perfect way to express myself, maybe. Um, and you know, those those films were so. Looking back now, they're pretentious as hell, and <laughs> no one they'll, they'll never see the light of day. <laughs> but um, they were enough to get me into film school, so that was great. And um, yeah, that's yeah. what counts. Yeah, and then. <laughs> Um, just from going to film school, I yeah, it was like my dream school, and it felt surreal for oh, about six so months awesome. of being there. And um, yeah, I, I I guess I just haven't stopped from there. That's amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> um, Very so I, I did story. No. About no. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you you also have because um, I I was snooping on on your website and I realized <laughs> that you also do like music videos. Um, yeah. How did how did you get involved with that? Was that some was that like um, a stepping stone to to making your feature film or was it just something that you did um, like as as a gig? How did that come about? Yeah. Well, when I was at film school, I um, you know you get to your, your final year and you're kind of like, oh shit, how am I going to make a living out of filmmaking? <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought I was being clever, and I kind of went up to my lecturer and was like, oh, I really want to um, first AD and as a way to make money, and you know, I'm, I I think I'm pretty good at it with like classmates films. Can you give me some advice on how to you know get into it? And she was like brilliant. I was just like, "Is that? Is it, do you want to be a first AD?" And I was like, "Oh, well, no, but you know, I need to, I need to work in the industry." And she was like, "Well, if you want to be a director, you should direct." And it was just, it was so simple, and it sounds so basic to say now, but it really made an impression on me. And so I met, consciously took on roles that were short term, which meant more commercial work, mm. um, as opposed to the kind of longer, long form gigs. And I just made sure I kept directing. And so music videos was a way to, uh, you know, you have a client, but it's usually a very creative job. And the way that I approached it was to kind of use it to aid the song as well, but also create these kind of short films and to, yeah, keep honing the craft of directing. So, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I've been lucky enough to collaborate with a couple of musicians who really I guess trusted me and um, gave me that creative freedom so yeah throughout it kind of they do for me I love them almost as much as my short films um, and it doesn't feel like you're having to compromise at every turn so that's that's kind of what um, struck me because I, I watched um, a couple of the music videos I watched uh, in particular mine I really oh, yep. I really enjoyed the visual aspect of that song oh, and thanks. As I was watching that, and I watched uh, Drumwave, which, gosh, I really that really connected with me. I really enjoyed oh, that great. one. But I, I noticed that there's like a, a sense of melancholy to some of the, to a lot of your your short films, and even like the the three generations of women in Relic. It's it's very it's very melancholic and like sorrowful. Is that like yeah, what's is there going something on? there? 
<laughs> are you okay? <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I I think there's almost a, I must have some, I don't know, it's, it's a very good point that you make. And it must be similar to the feeling that you get when you listen to a really sad and beautiful song. I think I really am drawn to that feeling. Um, and there's sort okay. of like a, like a, a I don't know, I, I think you, you do get like a bit of a dopamine hit from certain types of melancholy songs. Yeah. Like that. And so yeah. maybe I'm trying to, I don't know, reach for that in my work or something like that. I will say, because Relic certainly is a very somber, has a very somber tone, even though there's extreme moments of genre and I can't help but laugh in those moments because <laughs> they feel so, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a great way. I think, like, how else do you respond to something as extreme as that? Um, uh, yeah, I think in my, in some of the cinema that I admire is a lot of, like, South Korean cinema where mm. they straddle tone very well. And oh, that's yeah, that, yeah. that somber, you know, seriousness and disturbing psychological elements, but then there's this kind of comedic, absurd edge to it. Um, yeah. So I, it's something that I am striving for in, um, I'm, I'm at the moment writing a feature version of Drumway, the short that you mentioned. So, I was wondering, because I, I saw in yeah. an interview that you were talking about doing a uh, kind of, you, you called it like a Rosemary's Baby, but with Japanese yes. folklore. And I was like, yes. this sounds like Drumway. I got to ask ah, about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, you are correct. It is the, the same project. Um, and yeah, it's a folklore uh, set in Japan. So Hell yes. same kinds of themes. Yeah, yeah, I love folklore. Very so can you just for people who are familiar with relic can you just give us a quick synopsis of what the film is about yeah sure um the relic is a psychological horror and it follows three generations of women and it's basically an exploration of alzheimer's um so the mother and granddaughter have to search for the grandmother who's gone missing in her small country town and the grandmother actually returns a few days later, but she's come back slightly changed. And so it's about trying to figure out whether it's the Alzheimer's or something more supernatural. I'm like, how do I start talking about this movie? Because <laughs> I don't want to give, I don't want to give spoilers. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, I don't know, Terry, how do we feel about spoilers? <laughs> I guess we should probably yeah. avoid them because we're yeah. releasing this before people can see it. So, um, but so, but so I guess my first like big question is, why did you want to tackle Alzheimer's in this film? And I know that you address it also in your short film Crestwick, which I love, which mm. is, a, you know, a pretty, it feels like Relic, a, a short version of Relic. Yeah. So wh why did you want to tackle this topic in both yeah, your short film and your feature film? I think you, you as a filmmaker, you're just constantly drawn to... Um, yeah, things, the big issues that you're grappling with in your own life. Mm -hmm. And for me, yeah, I had a grandmother who suffered from Alzheimer's um, mm -hmm. for, you know, quite a long time. And so it was, I think, just forefront in my mind. And there was a particular trip that I took to Japan to visit her where um, it stuck out to me because it was the first time she couldn't remember who I was. And oh, there were wow. a lot of feelings so of guilt about not having to, uh, you know, see her earlier and more frequently and 
in combination with these feelings, um, she also lived in this really uh, traditional, uh, creepy Japanese house that I'd always Ooh. been terrified of as a kid because I was a scaredy cat. And um, I think the combination of those two things um, was the starting point for the film. So I started writing it on that trip, essentially. Wow. I... It, it's one of those things like one of the one of the things I think I appreciated the most about the film is um, I also have dealt with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's in my family. I remember the first time um, my grandmother talked about um, someone being in her house oh, and like gosh, yeah. she fell Ooh. over. She had like a stroke and she fell over. But in her mind, someone hit her on the back of her head. Oh, and, my like, God. And so she and then like she would talk when we we had her we at that point she couldn't live on her own and we had her like put into like a you know a nursing home and yeah. she would talk about you know the nurses stealing stuff or moving yeah. things around like so like yeah. seeing that played out in this movie and not i i think what i what i really enjoyed about this is about this as well kind of I'm writing my review about this, so I'm trying to like formulate my thoughts. <laughs> no. um, and, and it's like all coming back to me as I started started writing about it. But I think mm-hmm. what really struck me is that it doesn't feel horror. I mean, in the past, horror, and we'll talk about this a little bit, I think, with the movie you yeah. chose, horror has like this problem depicting uh, yeah. mental, mental illness. illness. Yeah. But what I've seen recently, I'm thinking of movies like The Babadook, or I'm thinking of Hereditary, or I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Relic, where it's like, it's not, the horror is has become a metaphor, as yeah. opposed to the mental illness being a metaphor for horror. Does that yeah. kind of make sense? Yeah. But I, I it mean, just, it... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 go no. ahead. I, it just, it's one of those things where it's like, it really struck me watching this, this film, and that's why um mary beth and i were talking we we really wanted to know if it, what your influence was because it felt very authentic yeah thank you um no it's a, it a massive um consideration and something that you know my co-writer my co-writer and i never wanted her to feel like this you know mindlessly evil force and i think mm-hmm. traditionally in horror it's almost lazy to to kind of attribute it. It's kind of like a shorthand that traditionally horror has used as a way to, to signal that someone is evil. And yeah, I guess, I guess we wanted a much more sympathetic approach to it. Um, Because one of the things about Alzheimer's as well is that a lot of the time their, your loved one's behaviors can be really scary um, or aggressive, but it's usually it's kind of rooted in something or some, even if it feels irrational in the way that it comes out, there is some kernel of a motivation for it or, you know, something that's upset them, whether it's just the lights are on and, and that's upsetting or whatever it is. And I think ultimately the, the message of the film is that, you know, we're still, they, they're still, no matter how different they seem to be becoming, they're still the person that you love and that you have to be there for them essentially. And that you have to find those moments of connection in the midst of like this darkness that's enveloped them. Um, so yeah, I, like I, it's a really, I think just philosophically really humanist approach. And um, even I think what's scary in the film is Edna's transformation, you know, what she becomes yeah. is not, is, you know, actually really um, frail and human. And what a lot of us look like at the end of our lives, just in terms of fragility. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's not what really what's scary. It's it's 
the way that the um, disease is ravaging her and making her act out. So, yeah, we never, you know, there is kind of like this sinister presence throughout, but we never wanted it to feel like the Alzheimer's and Edna is evil. Like we, we really shy away from that. I, I think it's just such a simplistic binary way to view the world that it's like yes. good and evil, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, yeah, certainly a conscious decision and I'm glad um, that it came across. Yes. Yeah, I uh, and again we, we're gonna avoid spoilers, but I I bawled at the end, the same. last oh. the last scene of the movie, big same, like was like it made me cry so hard, <laughs> which I was not expecting, <laughs> because let's be honest, the the first like uh the first hour or so is this really mm-hmm. powerful slow burn of mm-hmm. like almost like. A, a ghost story of this this house being haunted and there is some yeah. truly horrific imagery um in particular some of the the dream sequences how uh, how did you guys accomplish that some of those effects like the the old man that is oh um yeah yeah, yeah absolutely creepy. i i guess <laughs> i guess um going back to you know my early cronenberg kind of inspiration uh i really love practical effects and me too yeah my approach is just to go as practical as we can and then to enhance with vfx and so i would say in the film maybe like 70 percent of it is practical and then 30 percent to kind of elevate it um and you know wire removal and all that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so yeah i um I'm just trying to think back to what is in the cabin. Uh, yeah, so the, the old man, um, definitely practical, apart from just the, you know, the eyes opening. Just that, that was the only VFX element. What that was the part that scared me, is him on the floor yeah. and then, like, the eyes, like, move. I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, similar to the end of Preswick, yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of a joy to be able to put the essence of the short film into the feature as well, so that was pretty cool. But. I also want to talk about um, the way the house, like the, the setting of the film in this beautiful house and yeah. how you make the house feel so dangerous because mm-hmm. I was, I've, I, it's very, very strange because I have a reoccurring nightmare where my house is actually bigger than it seems. And there's like secret rooms <laughs> and I get lost in my house. Yeah, so yeah, when I yeah. watched this film, I was like, holy shit she tapped into my subconscious and illustrated the thing <laughs> that scares me the most, which I very much appreciated because it's like a really specific thing. So yeah. I just wanted to hear more from you about designing the, the designing the house, but then also going deeper into the house and the kind of the thought process yeah. behind designing the ho- the setting of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, well, I think the original concept for this kind of labyrinth space uh, came up because I watched this doco about a, a guy with Alzheimer's describing himself being lost within his own house. And uh-huh. so the idea of, you know, Edna becoming lost in the house and I won't go, get into that spoiler, but um, <laughs> yeah, the idea of Edna being lost within her house and that the house is almost being influenced by the deterioration of her mind and that hallways were kind of repeating themselves or kind of looping back into themselves. That was really fascinating to me. Um, I'm also a really big fan of um, House of Leaves. 
Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, like, let's have some leaves yeah. and influence, because that book yeah, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely. I love that book so much. But, um, in, in, like, in contrast to House of Leaves, where, you know, um, they go into a very different type of space, and it's this kind of black void, we really wanted it to feel as if it was a very gradual shift, I guess, kind of mm. mimicking the way that um, the decline of Alzheimer's and both from, for the, from the perspective of the person suffering through it and, and their loved ones, um, it can feel very gradual and you've got to quickly uh, normalize or, um, yeah, normalize behavior that you adjust to the new normal. I think we're very adaptable as humans. So we wanted a space that wasn't too much like a, a clear kind of portal into this kind of Narnia world. So in designing the space, we try to use the same architectural language as the rest of the house. And mm -hmm. so for Bella's character, Sam, when she's initially going in there, it feels like even though it's, it's, it's wrong and it's, it's almost like cognitive dissonance because you know that that can exist, but then it just feels like the rest of the house. That was something that we really strove to do so that it wasn't just this, you know, completely different space that she was entering. It was it was a gradual, um, yeah, uh, journey into it. And yeah. then by the time she realizes something's up or by the time she, I mean, she knows something's up from the get-go, but <laughs> <laughs> um, by the time she's had enough and she's like, fuck this, um, <laughs> it's too late, essentially. So, right. Yeah, but in the overall design of the house as well, like we really wanted a space that um, you feel really acutely how much the house has declined and yeah. that, the fact that it has a real history and that it hints to um, a sense of the times that were that had beforehand, before, you know, both in the tennis court and the swimming pool, which are now dilapidated. And we yeah. also really wanted to shy away from design elements that are more traditionally horror, I would say. So we wanted it to feel like your grandma's house um, and to have a sense of familiarity in that, but then to like slowly turn it on its head. So in terms yeah. of like the, col the color palette, it's all creams and blushes and, you know, sages as opposed to dark woods where things can hide. And um, yeah, there's still certainly shadows, but that was more in the construction of the walls and the, um, the separation of spaces as opposed to the, the color palette. Yeah, I was going to say, the house feels like a grandma's house. Like, it feels cozy, which I, mm -hmm. which makes it even scarier. Because you're like, oh, yeah, yeah this, this place that I can, like, definitely go and hang out with my grandma and eat cookies and, yeah. like, watch movies. And then you're like, oh, just kidding. So I Completely. love that aspect as well. Did you guys find a house like that? Or did you build a set? Um, or was it, it was a combination a of both? Yeah, a combination of three different elements. So two houses, one for the exterior, one for the interior. Oh. And then um, we built the labyrinth on a soundstage. Cool. Uh, I say a soundstage, but it was like literally a, a warehouse that was not soundstage. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and some of the upstairs bedrooms we also built um, on the soundstage too. And so we had so to cool. rebuild, like build some of the hallways so that the areas uh, stitched together more seamlessly. Cool. 
Wow. The other thing that um, I really appreciated about about this film is that you don't really have a traditional jump scare, but there are yes. some moments that are absolutely terrible, terrifying. Like the thing that the, the thing that always works for me and this movie has a lot of them is when you see a shadow and then the shadow moves. The thing that you thought right. is just the shadow starts moving. And I, I just, I, I really appreciated the, the use of, of dark of dark spaces and mm-hmm. of seeing things that you think is one thing when it's actually something else because i i watching watching it the second time i was i was just in awe of how tense it was without requiring some you know like someone lunging at you lunging at yeah. you or the, the the like the standard image of someone in the in the, the background and then in the foreground in front of the camera shadow passes by you oh, know yeah. something like that <laughs> like yeah. i was i was so appreciative that that you that this movie builds tension and releases it by not doing what is standard. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, I mean, jump scares certainly have their place, but for oh, yeah. me, um, yeah, they they have to be. Uh, yeah, they they feel like a, a cop out sometimes. I feel, and um, yeah, we really wanted something that wasn't that kept you on the edge of your seat, but it wasn't going to make you, um, I don't know, feel cheated or something. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a really conscious thing. I mean, we certainly, there's some tropes that we use, like the, the thing under the bed and, um, but even still that, that just plays into that whole shadow thing that like terrified me. Cause like, you're like, you, you become, um, Emily's character where you're like staring trying to strain to see if there's something there and then yeah. you notice what's happening and it's like ah <laughs> no uh, yeah yeah I think um, I think part of those things were the idea that Kay and Sam were being drawn into Edna's experience of the world yeah and the idea that you know with Alzheimer's they can they can hallucinate or, or, you know, with Sam Downing, for example, like the shadows seem to um, become filled with menace and, and that there could be someone there or, yeah, trying, try I guess, to to recreate that experience, but then also have the other two characters who are, you know, the, the straight characters kind of be drawn into it as well so that you're not sure what is real and what is in Edna's head and so with Natalie's press schedule, we wanted to make sure we had enough time to discuss her movie as well as the Tale of Two Sisters. So we recorded this little movement movie segment separately. Uh, so with that in mind, Mary Beth, what have you been watching? So I wanted to talk about this found footage film called Night Shot. It is from 2018. Ooh. It is French and it is all shot in one take, supposedly. Whoa. Yes, it is so cool. So What's it called? Um, Night Shot? Night Shot. So basically, I actually had like a tweet thread about this movie a couple days ago. I'll read the description. A haunting in real time. A beautiful young woman is subjected to a grueling night of terror, all accomplished in one take as she investigates paranormal reports at an abandoned facility. Oh, yeah. I remember you tweeting about this. Yeah. I was frustrated with a beautiful young woman. Like that description. I think it's so stupid. And like, I don't understand what the function about it's supposed to be. It's just like... She's an amazing actress, the person, like, the woman in front of the camera, but also there's a guy with her. She's, like, not alone. Is he sexy? He? he uh, the guy that she's with? You don't ever see him. 
Oh, he always oh, operating the camera. He's operating the camera. So like, well, there's a see, camera operator, mm. and so it's like this whole weird. And that's me thinking about like the male gaze, because like he's the one holding the camera with her, oh. and like so I go into like a like a spiral about thinking about that <laughs> about that. Well, it's but, it's frustrating because like yeah, because it's just, like it you, has no function. Well, except to like entice people to want to see a beautiful young woman get tormented is basically what it's trying to sell isn't it Uh, yeah exactly like that it felt like they were trying to sell this like movie about a woman getting completely brutalized and like that's not what the movie is at all and which i'm glad about like i thought it was gonna be this very like exploitative thing that was just about like torturing women but it really wasn't so i'm not really sure why they were trying to go for that vibe actually i do know and i don't like it um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but regardless of that, it's it's really, really well done. I kept trying to see if I could find where, like, they were editing in to make it, like, look like one sh- one long take. But I couldn't mm-hmm. tell. I also didn't want to, like, be that annoying person that was like, I need to see where they cut and where they, like... <laughs> see the so scenes. It, it's so impressive. And it's it has this, like, Blair Witch Project vibe to it in the way that, like, it's shot black and white and it feels very stark. Oh. And it only goes to color when you see blood for the first time, which is really oh. cool. Like, the camera glitches to show color, and you see, like, this big puddle of blood on the floor, which is really cool because it's, like, building up to that moment was really, like, and the tension they build is really awesome because, like, that's like, just the two of them in a abandoned building, and everything's creepy already. So I, the, the tension and the vibe of the movie is just really, really awesome. Um, it's on Amazon Prime. I really recommend it. Cool. Um, so is... Is there creepy things that happen on camera? Or oh, is yes. It... Yeah, okay. there's creepy things. That... So it does like, a lot of the, like, doors opening and closing, mm. um, things falling out of the ceiling. But, like, in a, in a way that feels, like, not super, like, cheesy. But the ending is really wild with, okay. like, the twist. Some people don't like it. I've seen a letterbox. Some people don't like it. But I thought it was wild. And, like, it, I thought it was, like, a satisfying, weird-ass ending. Um, so, yeah, it builds up to, like, a pretty wild finale, I think. Cool. At least in a way that I was not expecting. So Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. So uh, what have you been watching, Terry? I saw two, and I'll give one really briefly, and then the other one I really wanted to touch on. Uh, okay. So my catch-up with my my collection, I watched a movie that goes by many different names. <laughs> um, it's called The House on Tombstone Hill. It's called Dead Dudes in the House. It's called The Dead Come Home. In Germany, it's called Hexenhaus. And it's also been <laughs> called The Road, um, which Good I God. do not understand The Road, because uh, there is no road. It is basically <laughs> takes place in this one house where this group of college students, question mark, are fixing up. And there is this old woman who uh, is actually a man. Well, she's not a man in, in the movie, but she's played by a man who... Interesting. Is going around and basically killing people, but then they come back to life, sort of like Evil Dead Deadites coming back to torment everyone. What the fuck? <laughs> and it's so, it's very weird. It's very weird. Like, they can't escape this house. The house, like, literally locks down in, in like, magic so that they can't escape at all. And then there's this little old lady with a cane that's coming around and like very slowly walking towards people and then killing them. Um, <laughs> what year is this from? This is from 1989. 
Okay, and, it's and a what, what is the name release. that it's known by? The Vinegar Syndrome release is The House on Tombstone Hill. The House on Tombstone Hill, okay. Yes. The House on Hill, on Tombstone Hill, or Dead Dudes in the House. Like, could not, like two very different vibes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's more in line with Dead Dudes in the House. Like, it's, it's kind of a comedy. Um, I don't think it really um, works. <laughs> okay. I do, but, like the, I do like the cover art. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's fun. There's this really cool. There, the best scene is there's this really gnarly scene where someone finally tries to escape the house, and the window above him starts to like it. It's jagged, and it turns into like teeth and starts biting him in half. And Ooh. so there's like there's like a couple really, and there's some really um out of the woods I, homoeroticism like. They're in the beginning. They're kind of like talking about they have this like wood, <laughs> this uh, plywood that they're using, and like they keep saying like I think you should give me the wood. Come on, give me the wood. And <laughs> like that goes on for forever, where they just keep talking about the wood, and then later on, someone gets a pull in his chest, and he's like, it must be this big pull in my chest. That is a big pull. Like, there's so many what? little talks about <laughs> phallic images, and it, it's it's very weird. I watched it. It's a thing that I saw. But what I wanted to <laughs> really bring up, and it, feel, it felt appropriate for um, talking about the Korean horror film that we're going to be talking about, is I finally saw The Witch Part 1, The Subversion. Oh! Oh shit! Yeah, that Freddie Carlini. That Freddie Carlini talked about yes. on, back on his episode, and he's he's kind of pinged us about it a couple times. So I finally saw it, and holy shit, Mary Beth, this movie is good. Okay, fine, it's, I'll watch it's it. It's on it's on Netflix now. Oh fuck! Okay, cool. Even and better. it's basically like I. It's one of those movies that I don't want to spoil too much about, but it's yeah. basically it opens up with this little girl who is escaping some kind of facility okay you don't really know what's going on and she stumbles into this house uh where this elderly couple like basically take her in because she has she has no memory of who she is of what she's been through and then it cuts to like i think it's like 10 years later and she's a teenager and her parents um, aren't doing very well. The father is sick. The mom has some kind of like dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, I think, I think it might be amnesia, but I, I don't really remember what, if they really talked about it too much. But they are running into, into financial problems. And at the same time, there's this voice-esque show that is going on where people can go and, and, and or America's Got Talent like show, but in Korea where like people could go on and do their sing and whatnot and become, you know, famous. And so she tries out for that. And then all of a sudden it seems like people from her past have now found her and are coming to take her. What the fuck? And- that's all I want to say about it. It's wild. The last 30 minutes is a trip. It has some, some fantastic action in it. Um, it's, it's so good. It's so good. And I cannot okay. wait for them to do part two. Hell yeah. I'm so glad Freddie brought this to our attention. And I'm sad that I waited this long to watch it. Okay, cool. Then I will definitely be checking that out ASAP because I have wanted to and Freddie definitely is going to bug us until we watch it. So Yeah. <laughs> Love you, Freddie. Cool. So that's what we've been watching recently. And now let's go back to our interview with Natalie. Yeah. Yeah. It was so effective. So we've talked about Relic. 
which we're so excited mm-hmm. about. But Natalie, what fil- what other film are we discussing today? Yeah, so we are talking about A Tale of Two Sisters. Um, yes. yes. The 2003 classic, I believe. Yes. Yep, 2003. So just to, keep, to get everyone up to speed, if you're not familiar with Tale of Two Sisters, after being institutionalized in a mental hospital, Korean teen Sumi reunites with her beloved sister, Suyeon, and they return to live at their country home. The girl's widower father has remarried, and the siblings are immediately resentful of his new wife, Yeonju. As Sumi and Suyan try to resume their regular lives, strange events plague the house, leading to surprise revelations and a shocking conclusion. And listeners, if you have not watched Tale of Two Sisters, we are going to spoil it. So if you do not want to get spoiled on it, watch it first. Just like it's on Shutter. It's on Shutter. Just saying, please don't get mad at us for spoiling the ending of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, Natalie, how old were you when you first saw this film? So I was quite old, actually. I was like 13 when it came out. So, mm-hmm. uh, but it still, regardless, it scared me shitless. And well, yeah. I think what's what's so scary about this film is, as we were just talking about um, jump scares, the film does have jump scares, but there are so many sequences where the tension is built within a frame. And it's just a single mm-hmm. frame that's kind of moving, you know, minimally. But... Yeah, it just manages to kind of capture the menace in a way that I just feel like it, I don't know, it's, it, it, it sticks with you because you feel like it could almost happen in your own home. It's not like a, a quick flash of a jump scare and it's over. It's right. just, there's that wonderful bedroom sequence where, you know, there's a ghost in the corner of the room and it's just, you just slightly see its head bopping up. And then it goes back down again. And something in the physicality of the actor's performance as well is almost uncanny. And it really sticks with you. Yeah. So, so you, did you see it when it first came out? So you were, you were probably 13 at the time. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Did you, did you see it in the theater? Or did you see it like uh, on a DVD or a VHS no, or something? No, it must or? have been a DVD or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. It would have been months after its release. Yeah. Gotcha. So do you, do you remember, were there particular scenes that you remember um, absolutely terrifying you? I know you talked about the, the bedroom scene. Yeah, there's the bedroom scene. And then also there's a scene where they have a dinner party. Oh, um, yes. Okay. Yes, we have to talk about the dinner party. Because <laughs> that part was awful. Like in a good way. But I like texted Terry. I'm like, the dinner party scene is terrifying. <laughs> yes. And the girl under the sink. Yes. And the way that the, you know, the girl in the green dress just appears for one shot and then there's just that wide shot of nothing and the table's empty. And, yeah, it's just constantly kind of playing with your expectations of where the scare should be. Um, Yeah, the tension is like, I watched it last night and I was still like, oh, fuck, that's masterful. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I watched it last night as as well. And um, I, uh, you know... I, I do think jump scares do get a bad rep because there are so many not so good ones. But mm-hmm. the jump scare in the, in the kitchen, where I, I believe it was Yoon Joo who was reaching forward, yes. and then the hand like eventually like leaps out from underneath the sink. That yeah. moment, I have seen this movie twice now, and each time it has like made me jump out of my skin. Yeah, <laughs> and even in those flashes of that girl under the sink when um you know the other couple are driving home. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, fuck. 
ideas. It's 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 so creepy, and I I can't imagine the the mind fuck of seeing this at thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you understand what was happening? Like, did you with understand that? what was happening? Did you understand yeah, like the, I mean, the whole thing? Okay, cool. well, I mean, yeah. I only asked. I only asked because I was a little bit confused, <laughs> like watching it <laughs> last night. All right. Well, I think I think the one thing that the film it I think it's very of its time in a lot of ways because I feel like there was a whole slew of films in the noughties where it dealt with kind of multiple personality disorder, disassociative mm-hmm. personality disorder in a way that. I don't think you can get away with now unless it's really specific to the story. Um, this is one yeah. of those horror shorthands that we were talking about before. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, she it was, it was all her. All three personalities were her. And she was freaking herself out. But then what's really great about the film as well is something I kind of um, tried to emulate in Kreswick is the fact that, you know, you kind of go through the tension of like, oh, is it, you know, something supernatural? Is it a menace that, you know, we can't explain? And then there is a real world explanation. So then you're like, okay, we're back in the real world. And this is just some sort of like fantasy interlude. And then the real horror is revealed. And then so that's the ghost at the end, which I assume is either the sister or the mother um, who comes for the stepmother. Yeah, I thought it was the sister. But I yeah, guess it doesn't I mean, really like, matter. Yeah. <laughs> so when when I, I when I saw this movie it, the first time was in 2015. So I mean it wasn't that long ago for me. Uh, and it was be- I watched it because of seeing Uninvited, the American remake. <laughs> oh, the terrible and, one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I liked it. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> oh, no, Everyone says that. Oh god. I said the same thing, oh, Natalie. I was like, <laughs> I said the same you thing. Probably- I'm like the terrible. Mary remake. Beth did. She's like that terrible remake, and I was like, "Oh, I kind of dug it." Now, granted, granted, I haven't seen it since uh, probably the year that it came out, but like, I was. <laughs> let me tell you how confusing it is to watch a tale of two sisters after seeing the uninvited because right. it is nothing like the uninvited except for <laughs> half a third, a third of the twist, maybe. <laughs> I can't even remember. Is there a twist ending? Is there multiple well, the twist ending is that, like, you know, she kills she kills the the stepmother, and oh, then realizes that like her sister is dead and it was just her doing it, and right. that her stepmother probably wasn't evil. Uh, okay. Like that's how the the American movie remake ends because she's like she's found. I think I can't remember if she even tries to cover up for her sister or something like some, she does something and then she's found just standing there with like blood on her and her dad's like, what did you do? Oh, and you man. realize that, you know, so it's like one third right. <laughs> of the, the of this movie. And so I'm watching this this movie. I remember in 2015 and then I completely forgot about it. So I was watching it again last night and I was still thinking, OK, why are when they still talking to the more? sister? Like right. and, and, she, and, and like the mom is talking to the sister and and, and it like. Um, noticing that she is there, so I'm like, uh, so how? And I completely didn't realize, even watching it again and again, that the mom is is another personality of her. Um. Yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. So they tried to streamline it a bit more in the American version. Oh yeah, and then, oh, they, yeah. They, well, they and bastardized that version for sure. So I watched it for the first time um, last night for this podcast, and I feel oh. real bad for. 
waiting so long to see it because I've, I've wanted to see it, but I had seen the uninvited and I was like, well, I already mm-hmm. know the twist. So like, I don't know. It might not be as, as good. Um, I was, I was surprisingly mistaken, very excitedly mistaken because I was watching it and I was like, wait, but she is acknowledging the sister. So what is wrong here? Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, even though when there is the reveal that the sister is dead, it just keeps going and going. And it yeah. is such, I mean, I was late after I watched it, I was laying in bed and just staring at the ceiling. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> so what is sad. That? <laughs> I know. Like, it's yeah. just, and Relic does this too, actually. I really love it. And maybe this is a lot about me when a horror movie is both scary and really sad. Like mm-hmm. it's emotionally effective and not just like trying to freak you out, but in really like yeah. looking at sorrow and grief and sadness. And yeah, I think that's, amazing when a horror film can both scare you and make you cry mm-hmm. yeah one of the like big kernel references for relic was um j.a bayona's uh the orphanage oh my god uh, yes yeah, right which is one of those films where you watch it and you, you're just like sobbing at the end but it's bawling. <laughs> once yeah. you realize what's happening in the movie yeah. fucking bawling yep. but then still delivers those scares and it's like you know really tastefully done and yeah yeah massive reference for me so oh you watching it last night was that the, was that the first time you've seen it since you were a kid or you, is this something that you go back to no i hadn't seen it in a good i want to say like eight years something like that but then i realized i clean stole a shot from that film for presley oh, really? yeah there's like a shot where i mean it's it's so simple it's just like a, a track amongst all the um in that bedroom scene i was describing she's kind of just scanning the room and there's a really oh, yeah. shot where there's lots of shadows and you kind of just feel like something's going to pop out at any second. Yeah, there's a shot in Creswick that was, I, I definitely remember making it and going, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to like <laughs> have that effect. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, in terms of how the film holds up now, I think, you know, there's problematic areas, but I still think, um, what's his name, Jim, uh, Kim Ki-woon, he's just, yeah, phenomenal director. And you really feel like you're in almost, I know it's a horror film, but you still feel like you're in safe hands because he's got such a good grasp of craft. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, and that's something that I realized watching it last night as well, is that the, the film starts very, after she gets out of the, the hospital, it's mm. very idyllic. You know, it's, it's very almost like 70s, like kind of just this very like rustic very the music is very calming it's very mm-hmm. bright that's it's very you know, they go down to the to the lake and their feet are in the water it's that's just one it's of my so like favorite shots of the movie too when they're sitting on the pier together and oh, it just yeah, is like yeah. this beautiful like oh it's just two sisters together and it's great and like you know you know it's not oh it's like you know something's gonna happen but it's just like this kind of sad yet beautiful moment of like just tranquility yeah. with the two of them I think there's a power in, you know, um, not saying it's bad when directors are just horror directors, but the fact that he isn't just a horror director, there's something, there's just a really interesting um, approach to it because it's not, it's not like the whole, I mean, it gets very extreme, but it's not like everything works to signal the horror. It's, there's a lot of just really disturbing psychological things at play. And yeah, um, yeah, I think, I, I think in some ways, it's just uh, has a fresh take to it, even though it, it does, it is reminiscent of, of a lot of Asian horror. And so Kim Ji Woon did 
the good, the bad, and the weird, and I saw the devil. And I yeah. saw the devil. Have you seen I Saw the Devil, Natalie? I've seen that one, not the good, the bad, and the weird. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen the good, the bad, and the weird either. I really want to, but I saw the devil. Oh boy, oh, that is so intense. So intense. But again, <laughs> yeah. like he is so good with tension. It is it, it is yeah. ridiculous how good he is with tension. Like it just Yeah. It's like you feel like you're gonna get heartburn watching it, but you're excited <laughs> to get heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's my review. And I appreciate that he kind of just embraces these really heightened worlds. Um, Yeah. You know, that, yeah, there's still like an emotional truth, but they're they're definitely not, you know, what you'd call grounded. (laughs) Yeah. And I was talking to Terry about this before, about going back to the remake and how the remake just feels so dumbed down, which is kind of sad to me. It's like, I think a lot of Korean horror films... And I mean, I I only know a lot about Korean horror film. I don't know about much about like other genres of film in um, in Korea. But there are so I feel like a lot of the time the storylines are very complex and complicated. And it's like audiences, they like audiences in the U.S. can't handle that kind of complexity, which I don't think is true. But I mean, it's just it is hard to kind of grasp the act, like the complexity of the storylines that come yeah. together in this film. And it just makes me sad that it was just so watered down. Yeah, I I think there's always a danger of becoming too convoluted, probably. But at the same time, I do think maybe um, one of the things I've I've noticed is like working with you know American partners on Relic is that they're not, or you know, Americans tend not to like ambiguity as much. Mm. And whereas in Australia, I think a lot of the drama that we put out can it can handle that like it endings can be a little bit open-ended and that's not something that we um kind of shy away from but I feel like yeah yeah I, I don't know what it is about it maybe just because it's a bigger industry a bit more commercial um but yeah you're everything needs to be kind of laid out otherwise it's a problem yeah, <laughs> yeah. it it's so it's so frustrating to me as as someone that that loves American horror movies mm. because I, I I I see a lot of people that when they're they're approached with something that doesn't necessarily have like a clear cut ending or that's like ambiguous or even heaven forbid requires you to pay attention during the movie for like clues like I remember so many people that were upset with with Hereditary and I'm like dude it, Hereditary literally walks you through what's going on yeah, if yeah. you just are paying attention to it and that's not even a really complicated complicated movie so it's it's what it's definitely like again watching uninvited first and then coming to see this one was was such a confusing mess for me because (laughs) of what i was going and thinking i was getting and that is so not (laughs) what you get but i think it's better for it i agree oh i was just gonna say and and the, the the film itself like the story is based on um korean like a folklore tale right yeah yeah it is wow that's something that also I that surprised me is how much has been taken from the the I don't know how to pronounce it jo- Josian Josian era because mm-hmm. like I it seems like that era has which is what this 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 folklore originated from is like because it's having like a a, a moment right now with uh, there's the Netflix series Kingdom which is set in that oh, time period yeah, yeah. and then there's there's also this uh, monster movie that just came out on Shudder called Monstrum mm-hmm. that is also from a, 
a Josian era, and then I've, I see this is also taken from that. I'm wondering what's going on in that era. Like <laughs> yeah, I am woefully, woefully unaware, like un, un, uneducated on like eras of history in Korea. But I also know that like a lot of, and then Japanese horror as well. They a lot of these films pull from like ancient folklore, but modernize it mm-hmm. in a really fascinating mm-hmm. way. And I'm not sure why exactly that era for Korea, but I just know that folklore is so much more like is more there's more like a folkloric tradition um in Japan and Korea as opposed to the US. I feel like we have folklore but it's it's so new based like I guess kind of compared to like mm. the centuries of history in Korea mm-hmm. and Japan or at least like I don't know. I feel like they have a, a deeper folkloric tradition that is more like culturally recognized in my mind, yeah. rather than I feel like in the US, we don't really have that. We don't have that kind of united folkloric identity that we all are familiar with and kind of gather around, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Definitely. It's interesting how a lot of the folklore, uh, I, I, I'm a massive, um, I guess it, it really interests an area that really interests me, but um, just how much a lot of it tends to be like, wronged woman oh, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah. You know oh, I mean? yeah. And, and similar with this you know the folklore behind the I think, like, two sisters I think it's like a, a two sisters who were killed by their stepmother's son because you know they, they were framed for having like extramarital sex or something like that something crazy and it, it it's interesting how much it goes to highlight all these kind of gender politics and the ways that women have suffered in our societies mm-hmm. and how they have to come back as these like avenging supernatural forces to kind of get their uh, revenge or you know justice um yeah it's like it's almost like it's all it's only safe within a supernatural realm because it's yes you know i don't i don't know but it seems to be a trend i mean and a lot of yokai in um japanese mythology is that you know it's wronged women or yeah women who have died in childbirth or um well and you even think of like the ring or you know or juan the, the grudge where it's it's always the kind of woman who is drowned in a tub or stuffed in a a well or you know it's always like it's that i i think there might be something to it what you're saying about working through metaphor as kind of like a way of talking about feminine rage um Mm -hmm. that maybe makes it i don't know let more palatable for like male yeah. audiences or something. I don't, also, I don't know. But it's... also like an easy way to demonize the woman as yes. well in a way. No, absolutely. Yeah. Are, yeah. It's an interesting space. Um, yeah. Especially cause I feel like a lot of directors, like a lot of horror directors from Japan and Korea are, it's mostly male. They're like a male dominated fields too, which is fascinating to see how like male directors are in turn interpreting, interpreting stories about female rage and feminine revenge, yeah. which is very yeah, fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah, one thing I've also noticed recently is that um, even even in like Western horror, I'm I'm writing a you know my folk horror which has a lot to do with motherhood and and pregnancy, and I've been Ooh. doing a lot of research into like pregnancy horror, and it's where there's only like two films that are directed pregnancy horror films that are directed by women, like they're all directed by men. Right? It strikes me as the oddest thing, um, but you know, I guess. <laughs> I guess that can change soon enough. <laughs> I hope so. It's it's like 
You know, it, it's sort of because Mary Beth, it, it seems weird to say this, but like she's a self-professed like the revenge, the rape revenge type oh, yeah. right. movies well, I, and like oh, seeing yes. <laughs> and like seeing what what women are doing with that genre now is so interesting when when you look at the historical yeah. context of, of yeah. that of that subgenre. And so it, it's 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 weird to think that you look back at all the like the big pregnancy uh, horror movies and most uh, I can only think of maybe Prevenge yeah maybe. Right. Alice Lowe's film yeah exactly which has like a comedy bent to it as well but yeah yeah completely well and also pregnancy is always used to make a woman monstrous like in the brood yep. like in the brood mm. when she's like pregnant but it's like asexually reproducing it's just like gross and then Rosemary's baby the baby is monstrous um, and like pregnancy has always been seen as this othering thing, and like you give birth to a monster, or like or even inside, yeah, yeah and inside, yeah, and like yeah. your body is like because I mean pregnancy is pretty freaky. Like to mm. me, I think it's freaky. Yeah, <laughs> um, same. It, it is freaky, but it's like the way that it's taken as like it's a parasite inside of you, or like it's like bursting out of you. I mean, yeah, al- I mean, even like, alien has that kind of pregnancy metaphor to it as well. Yeah, and it's just which I used- think is totally valid because it is it it does feel. Completely completely unnatural in many ways you know like nothing in your life prepares you for something like that I feel in our modern lives um but yeah it's just interesting that that specific story which is such a female experience is often told by men yeah Um, I know anyway it's very fascinating no it's a really I actually had never thought about that before and that is really fascinating and strange huh but going back with like the 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 female rage in this movie you don't Mm -hmm. ever really get a sense of of the the stepmother like through most of it mm. because once you realize halfway through that you know it's not even halfway i think maybe three-fourths of the way through that the the person we're seeing that we think is the stepmother is actually in in the cinema terms her other like split personality mm-hmm. it's like you don't we, we don't ever really get a scene of her outside of the the ending where yeah. she you know stops uh, Sumi from checking in on on her sister and tells mm-hmm. her, you know, you're going to regret this. But like, it's it's so weird to me that that she's presented as as a villain when we don't really know anything about her. Well, and she's yeah. presented as a villain because she marries their dad. Like, it's very right. much like she's a villain through the eyes of a child. If that, mm-hmm. yeah, makes but sense. also like in in some ways, I felt like she was scarier in real life even though she's not yes. as unhinged and vain as you know she appears in her split personality yeah it just feels like the fact that you would let a child die under a wardrobe <laughs> and just, like, oh and my just God. calmly have a conversation like that is stone cold man like that. it's it's yeah. fucked <laughs> it really is when- though like she's like oh i'm gonna enact my petty revenge on a teenager by kill like letting her fucking sister die, die. yeah yeah <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> that'll teach her you'll remember this that one day yeah, like it's yeah. it's so it, it's so almost like it mustache twirling like villain like yeah. levels of of because she goes in there and she sees her dying and she walks out it's not even like there's no way of of even trying to rationalize her behavior she freaking walks out of this this girl that's like suffocating under this wardrobe yeah it's not like a hereditary moment where you know she just can't deal with it she actually deals with it in that moment and then 
you know, like, this is fine. Yeah. I'm going to go yell at her sister. Completely. Whereas, whereas the, the stepmother throughout the film is more sympathetic because she is clearly losing, you know, seemingly losing the love of the, mm-hmm. the husband and has her own mental, you know, health issues. So, yeah, I thought I thought she was much scarier at the ending. Well, and she's wearing that, like, a very, like, intense turtleneck, too. Like, a very, like, you know what I mean? Like, that stern black turtleneck that, like, always makes you think, like, evil, which is why I own, like, four. Um, I know. I'm wearing a turtleneck right now. That's funny. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I do have a question because I was very – I was confused on one part and I would like to get your input. So he he marries the caregiver, correct? That's their stepmom. Mm -hmm. But – did he marry them before her mom passes away? I think it's implied, yeah. Um, okay, because the mom is, they find the mom yeah, I kills guess herself in the wardrobe, correct? Illness, yeah. And they have started this affair. Um, I don't think, I don't know if they're engaged. I don't think they get married before she dies, but I think it's the the clear evidence of their relationship and them flaunting it in front of her that makes her kill herself. Okay, that's what I thought too. <laughs> I kind of got the feeling watching it this time that maybe they had just like announced that they're you know yeah, getting yeah, married yeah. or something like that, and that's like the inciting incident that causes everything to explode. Which is so fucked. Like, what the hell, Dad? Right. I mean, if anything, he's like a villain, and he gets yeah. off scot free in this movie right? for the most part. I was part. like, this guy sucks. Like, can we get more like dad like revenge on like dad being a bad parent and like not really. Yeah understanding how to take care of his his child and also for abandoning his wife who is still alive at the time when he like announces his engagement like what's wrong with you completely and it's like his one dialogue is always just please stop this (laughs) (laughs) stop talking (laughs) i mean it's tricky from a um, writing perspective to have to have this sort of twist you know and and have to play with the uh, how the characters relate to each other and, and make it makes sense in the audience's minds and, and in the twist as well, of course. But yeah, a hundred percent. Like he does not get any sad points. No, not at all. But you know, the the thing that I, I really appreciated at this time rewatching um with kind of like the knowledge of what the movie was was a was about this time as opposed to the first time I watched it was kind of piecing together why everything feels a little off because you know there's there's the moment where uh Sumi is is yelled at by by her stepmom for setting up uh, the, her father's underwear or, you know, which I, her garment, his garments. And I'm like, OK, that's kind of weird. But if, you know, if she's thinking of of herself as both of them, then it would make sense that she would have done it and then she would get mad at herself for doing it. And then there's the pills that he keeps pot- putting in front of the, the mom as opposed to like her. There's all these little scenes that just seem on first watch, just really kind of absurd or a little slightly off of normal and watching it, knowing what's, what's going on and seeing the kind of like how the story is, is pieced together is, was really fascinating this time. Yeah. Yeah. For me. Yeah. You can see how they've kind of um, set it up and um, put the, the seeds in or the hints everywhere. Yeah. So Terry, how many wardrobes out of five, would you give a tale of two sisters? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> it's my terrible, terrible dark joke for the day. Uh, I love it though. Um, I I think I would give it uh four 
out of five. Um, okay. I think that I I love the construction of this story. I think the first time I watched it, my opinion of it was 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 a lot lower because I was so confused as to what was going on, and I was trying to reconcile two different <laughs> thoughts of what this movie was yeah. was going to be about the first time. But watching it this time with an understanding of where the story was going and how it was kind of pieced together, I found myself really enraptured with trying to go, oh, so this is why this is happening and this is why this is happening. And I think when a movie can do that and and warrant additional watches and you can get something different from the the film, I think that that's I think that's the power of art. And I yeah, I I would probably give this probably four wardrobes out of five. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Mary Beth? Um, I would also give it four wardrobes out of five. It stuck with me so much after watching it. And still today, Mm. I can't stop thinking about it. I think the only reason I don't give it a full five is because the storytelling is like a little too convoluted for my brain. Um, However, I understand too that like, I think the storytelling that he's going for is much more complex. And I, I love that about it. And I think I, I'm glad I saw this now rather than like when I was in high school, because I feel like I wouldn't have appreciated it as much <laughs> as I do now. And like the beauty of that complex storytelling and the way that he doesn't always want to give you like direct answers and kind of makes you work for that payoff. And it is like such a gorgeous film and it's scary and sad. And it is just a beautiful piece of horror cinema. Natalie, you have the final word. What are your thoughts on A Tale of Two Sisters and what do you give it out of five? Yeah, I have to agree. I would give it four out of five wardrobes. And I think <laughs> I was gearing towards a 3.5, but I think because it's such a nostalgia film for me, it, it mm. deserves a four for sure. Um, I just think it, it's incredible in terms of atmosphere and um the tense scares uh those two set pieces the bedroom scene and the under the sink scene are yeah scenes that i think about often and so good. they still i think hold up to this day i think the film kind of falls apart in its third act even though that's when things are revealed just in terms of where the plot is going but also the um i guess sort of the performance style becomes quite a bit more heightened and yeah I, I found it now watching it now a little bit tiresome at the end but regardless I still think yeah. it's, it's wonderful and so well crafted and yeah I think he's an incredible director and his the, I mean the production design and the cinematography and um factor sound design were all kind of 10 out of 10 so yeah four out of five wardrobes Sweet. You know, it's funny. You're talking about the heightened um, acting towards the end, and I we had we didn't even talk about the fact that they get into a fight involving teapots of boiling water and scissors. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, like, I think I blocked it out because I was like, absolutely fuck that. I will not be dealing with boiling water today. Like, absolutely <laughs> not. I hate that. <laughs> I love it's, I love those dumber moments. So when you yeah use unusual kind of weapons. To have a fight. <laughs> it's like, out of teapot, the teapot. I'm like, oh god, I love it. Uh, well, thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us to talk about a tale of two sisters. Where can our listeners find you, and what do you have coming up that you'd like to share? Oh yeah, um, I don't really have a Twitter account or anything like that, but you can find me on Instagram. I guess I'm just at Natalie E James. Uh, Relic is coming out July 10th on VOD, but it's also playing in drive-in theaters from July 3rd around the U.S. So, That's please come so check cool. it out. 
Yeah. I love that IFC is doing that. They did that with the wretched recently. Yeah. And I'm I'm so great. glad that in this time of COVID that we're finding ways of, of celebrating Definitely. some kind of communal experience. Yeah. I'm really enjoying like the sheer novelty of it. So yeah, it's cool. It's yeah. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with A Tale of Two Sisters? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at NB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.